Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Thanks for being with us. Well, if you have had to fill up a vehicle in the past few days, you know Gas is expensive right now, tipping the 170 per liter price tag at many stations in Metro Vancouver, about 30 cents higher than the price was just in April. So what is causing these high prices? Let's bring in Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. Dan, good morning to you. Uh, it is a good morning, unless, of course, I'm visiting a gas station, uh, Jill. Yeah, so what is it to, that you think is causing these uh, high prices? Well, you, first of all, begin with a base that's much higher than the rest of North America, with the exception maybe of Los Angeles or California. Um, your prices tend to be uh, a lot more expensive uh, from the get-go. Uh, you're, you've had your guest, uh, Chris Sims, here many times on the station talking about uh, gas taxes, but that's 70 cents a litre. Uh, it's nothing to uh, to sneeze at. I mean, it's significant because it's the most expensive tax jurisdiction uh, of any city that I'm aware of uh, anywhere in North America. But aside from that, Vancouver, of course, has a bit of a supply problem. Uh, it gets the majority of its gasoline either from Edmonton via the Trans Mountain Pipeline or, to a lesser extent, uh, but very true for Vancouver Island, uh, Washington State refineries. And those refineries, at least one, uh, which I had uh, discussed with your colleague Mike Smith a little while ago and Janet Brown over two weeks ago. Uh, we had the Ferndale Phillips 66 refinery just south of the border that uh, ran into a mechanical problem with production of gasoline, and that sent uh, futures markets down there uh, soaring. Um, and that, of course, meant uh, increases in prices from the buck 60 range to the buck 70 range. We then had something else that I discussed earlier, funny enough, uh, with Janet um, Brown, uh, one of your reporters, that uh, what happens if the Olympic pipeline, which always closes for a week or so to undergo maintenance because there were issues there years ago. Someone was actually killed with an explosion because there was improper maintenance. So they went down this week as well and uh, began uh, at least a one week, one and a half weeks worth of uh, maintenance, and that, of course, uh, meant even less supply for the market. At the same time, we're seeing oil prices you know, moving from $72, $71 a barrel to $75 a barrel this morning. So all of this was really, uh, I mean, <laughs> the perfect storm that is developing, at least for Vancouver, and for all the reasons I've just cited. It's uh, uh, making, of course, prices at a dollar seventy-three point nine. Uh, the highest ever paid by any city or any jurisdiction in North America ever. So it's uh, it's not a happy uh, or pleasant outcome. And, of course, there are very few alternatives for drivers unless, of course, they can get out of the tax zone, which is uh, the TransLink tax zone, into other areas, uh, perhaps out towards Abbotsford. But I don't think people are going to drive that far. And, of course, we don't have the option of going south of the border, uh, given that the borders close at least until the 21st. 
And we've talked about it in the past as well, about refineries being closed, whether it's for maintenance or like you said, seeing that that have an impact. But it just seems that we've not seen this big of a jump before, even when we've had those similar scenarios. Yeah, and you've also had an add-on of taxes. I mean, uh, the situation seems to be getting a little worse as global demand for energy continues to rise. Whether we like it or not, uh, we are fighting our way through the pandemic, which I think all of us uh, you know, are very happy with. And despite the Delta variant, we are still seeing uh, global demand rise and just not enough supply to meet that. That's sort of a global issue and a North American issue, but specific to Vancouver, I mean, you just can't ignore. Uh, I'm here in Ontario. The you know the uh, we're paying a buck thirty four for a liter of gasoline. Of that, it's forty eight cents is tax. Uh, you know, when you add another twenty two cents on top of that, uh, you know, you could imagine what could happen. But here's something that um, I've had to wrestle with, and it's been for the past two years. We know the BCUC came out with its report, uh, commissioned by the the Horgan government, uh, to find. What was the problem last time we saw buck seventy two, which was the last record back oh, April of twenty nineteen? The report came out and said, "Hey, we we've done a thorough review, even though we're not allowed to look at regulations, and we found that it was thirteen mystery cents." Mm-hmm. My contention at the time was eight to thirteen cents was in fact the BC uh, low carbon fuel standard, and groups like Navius and others came out and said, "Oh no, it's only three or four cents a liter." Well, if you go to the BC government's own energy mines and uh, low carbon innovation ministry you'll see right there the carbon credit for the last quarter was actually for an average of 410 dollars that works out to 14 cents a liter plus gst on top of that so that tax in of itself what i call a second carbon tax is really at the root of why prices are significantly higher and it answers very clearly those who uh, cynically put out the idea that it was 13 mystery cents there is no mystery sense you have a carbon tax of 9.96 plus 14 cents. All in all, your two carbon taxes are well over 25 cents a liter. Mm, so you've, you've been able to find where the missing, the, the mystery 13 cents, where that came from. Well, that came from, uh, I guess, uh, it may very well have been some political spin before uh, an election in which uh, it was thought, well, we're not allowed to look at the regulated side. Regulated prices or at least the regulations affecting prices, uh, include the low-carbon fuel standard, the BC low-carbon fuel standard. And uh, I'm just looking at the guideline here, or at least the, the when it was introduced in 2015, it was about $150 a, per credit. You're now pushing you know, 375 to 450 uh, for that credit, which means that the, you know, the, at the time in 2015, oh, it's only be two or three cents a litre, which is fine, but no one took into account what would happen uh, a carbon credit market in which uh, there's far more demand than supply. In other words, there's not enough credits to go around. Um, it's highly unregulated in the sense that, although it's transparent, uh, actors within this group um, are not exactly uh, what I would consider up and up. It's interesting, um, you know, I'll just gel, gel that the... Uh, the folks, the actors pushing the hedge funds into these carbon markets, the Trifiguras, the, uh, the Vitals, the uh, Goldman Sachs, the Bloombergs, all these folks are really big on the shift and the transition on a low-carbon future and net zero and all these other things. But what they don't mention is that they're making a, a killing at our expense on these carbon credit markets. Now, the rest of Canada is going to go into this low-carbon fuel standard. In fact, Trudeau 
announced, I think, on the December 19th, that the rest of the country would start to emulate what BC is doing without taking into consideration perhaps the spin that was given here in the province that there was no real big deal about this. We're now looking at the prospect of um, the European carbon credit market, which is $650 for a credit. That would mean a 20 cent a litre increase. And if Trudeau is uh, on his mark to break an election promise, uh, as he did, and uh, saying we're going to $170 uh, a ton, which BC will eventually have to follow, we're looking at a 65 to 75 cent a litre increase. So, you know, when I get people telling me maybe it's time to drive EVs, I said maybe it's time to rethink the political stance that says, hey, we need to tax the daylights out of people with no appreciable drop in carbon emissions. And in my view, of course, uh, uh, you know, sooner or later, the public is going to push back on the folks pushing this. It's an interesting point because I often wonder as well, at what point does the, what price does gas get to where people do finally say this, this doesn't work. This is not, we're not reaching our goals. Uh, we're, we're having all of this pain and not reaching our goals. This is not, we're not going to put up with this anymore. Yeah. Well, I think we're already there. Look, I spent, uh, what, 18 years as a Liberal Member of Parliament uh, under two different uh, Prime Ministers, Kretzian and uh, Martin. Uh, I think uh, affordability, uh, availability, reliability all comes into this. And, you know, you can tax people into into oblivion. And sooner or later, it, it comes back to haunt you in terms of lower economic growth, people not able to come into town to work. Uh, we can want... Uh, the, the difference here is aspirational versus reality. As we come out of this pandemic, I think reality is going to start to grip everyone, certainly our pocketbooks. And that is going to cause, you know, uh, technocrats and leaders and politicians to pay a little bit more attention to the fact that people are hurting badly. And uh, we all want to do the right thing. uh, And we are doing the right thing. But, you know, Vancouver should not be the whipping post uh, for those who have a particular agenda, right or wrong. Sooner or later, there has to be some balance. And the balance has to now swing back. The pendulum, if you will, has to swing back towards uh, economic fiscal reality, not aspirational ideas that uh, really are born out of the idea of that uh, we can tax everybody into oblivion, you know, uh, reduce their energy uh, consumption uh, because they, you know, to levels that we haven't seen perhaps in 30 or 40 years. These are all wonderful things, but, you know, as as pointed out, uh, you know, there is significant down, down, you know, down effect for people trying to make ends meet. And I think that's where our politicians have to look for a happy medium uh, because uh, right now you don't have that in Vancouver and it's, uh, there's a need here uh, for balance. All right, Dan, we'll leave it there for today, but thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Great to be here. Have a great weekend. Long extended Canada Day weekend. All right, you too. That is Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. This is Mornings with Simi. We are keeping close tabs on the various wildfires that are currently burning in BC and our mornings with Simi contributor Raji Sohal joining us now with the very latest update from the Thompson Nicola Regional District. Raji, good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. Yeah, very tense, stressful situation there. I was watching it unfold on the news last night, but also on Twitter where people were commenting live about what's happening right there in their neighborhoods, what they can see. And uh, just uh, moments ago, I spoke with Scott Hildebrand, the CAO of Thompson Nicola Regional District on what uh, is going on with the wildfires right now. Yesterday was a you know, it was a, a busy day for the Emergency Operations Center and the TNRD. Um, we had uh, multiple alerts that needed to be put out. Um, and even late last night before we were closing our Emergency Operations Center, we needed to do a, an order to evacuate 
for an area between Lytton and, um, and Lillooet for about 40 properties there. Uh, so that was a concern as the, the fire continued, continued to move in that area. Can you tell us what happened in Kamloops last night? Yeah, we uh, we actually were just um, just leaving our EOC at about 9 o'clock in a, a huge electrical storm uh, came through Kamloops, one of which people are saying they've never seen before. I decided to kind of hover over the city of Kamloops and I, I've got to give my my, as a resident of Kamloops, I have to give my hats off to the city of Kamloops leadership, uh, the fire department, the police department, and emergency support service for a great job. We had uh, multiple lightning strikes throughout the city and, and fires that were starting in multiple locations. Uh, people were self-evacuating. There was a tactical evacuation in one specific area of Kamloops by the RCMP. Um, but, you know, that, that entire group pulled together and uh, that along with some help from uh, uh, a downpour of rain really helped curb that situation. So, you know, hats off to the city of Kamloops. And we so, run, we run, we run concurrently. So, we're looking after the TNRD um, and everything kind of outside the city of Kamloops. And when this happened, it was uh, it was kind of a shock at the end of the a long day. But uh, of course, city of Kamloops, as I was stepped up. And then the situation turned around because was it because of the rain? Well, it was because of the response, it was because of the communication, and of course, rain certainly helped. And so the fire there was no longer seen as an imminent threat? Yeah, it was. Uh, it took a few hours. There were some tense situations, but um, things were controlled. Okay. I saw on Twitter as it was happening that some residents were saying, why are they calling it off, the evacuation off, when I can I can see fire still? Mm, yeah, I can't speak to that. That would be a, a question for the city of Camas. Mm-hmm. That would be kind of out of our jurisdiction. Yeah. Do you have any update on um, evacuation centers, what they're looking like right now? Yeah, our reception centers and our evacuation centers are, uh, are of course, starting to get full because now working uh, with the city of Kamloops, they were they were beginning to be full prior to this event in Kamloops. So um, I know that we are certainly at capacity. Um, I know our emergency operations team is... Um, is working on a lot of other things. Um, we're lo- working on, uh, we're working with ranchers and farmers. Um, we, di- we did a lot of that yesterday, trying to find solutions for cattle and livestock. Uh, we're also working on um, assisting uh, pet owners. Um, so we got a, a plan there we're working on uh, to uh, to assist pet owners that for a place for them to go. And then I guess most importantly, one of our focuses going forward is creating a, a recovery center. Uh, that's something that's in the works location yet to be determined. But uh, for the, the folks and the, the people that were impacted in Lytton, uh, we need a place for them to go to, to get resources for everything from perhaps they lost their lost the driver's license um, or, you know, they, they've got questions about other personal effects. They might need insurance questions. Um, all sorts of things we're trying to they might need medical supplies or prescriptions so we're just trying to work and coordinate that that whole effort to continue to bring support to the the folks folks from Lytton and area yeah such a stressful time for everybody in that area Raji thanks so much and I know we're going to check in with you a bit later on in the program as well thank you so much Jill this is mornings with Simi 
We are keeping tabs on the wildfires currently burning in this province. And a lot of people have been pointing to the extreme weather, taking a look, especially at the temperature in Lytton, the days leading up to the fire that decimated that town. Scientists as well have been warning for years about heat waves and wildfires and the fact that we're seeing them earlier in the seasons. Let's bring in Sonia Furstenau, leader of the BC Green Party. Thanks so much for being with us this morning. Happy to be here, Joe. Uh, what are your thoughts on this and the conversations that are being had as far as extreme weather uh, situations, what we're seeing in the province right now, and climate change? Yeah, as you just pointed out, this is uh, this is what scientists have been predicting, which is uh, seeing not only higher temperatures, but the kinds of extreme weather events like the heat dome that we just uh, are in and is still over much of British Columbia, um, the kinds of uh, storms that we've seen, the, the thunderstorms and lightning that are now setting off fires all around BC. Um, and I think what, what we should be recognizing at this point is that what all of this brings, this, this altered climate, is it, it brings a level of uncertainty now that we are going to be having to live with and also is going to be incumbent on us to begin to mitigate against. So we are in climate change. It is here. Uh, and we are now seeing the, the, the devastating and absolutely heart-wrenching uh, outcomes. Uh, I can't even put words to, you know, the, what people in Lytton have lost. Uh, the lives lost in the heat wave, and now um, we're hearing in the news, you know, fires are starting all over the province. What do you think BC can do? There's a lot that BC can do. First of all, we have to literally stop being denial in denial. Um, we are we have seen an doubling of the subsidies of fossil fuel industries under the. Uh, NDP government, uh, we have to turn this around immediately. We cannot continue to use taxpayer money to fund the fossil fuel industry, which will continue to create exactly these outcomes. We have to use that kind of resources to transition the economy very quickly uh, to ensure that we are moving to a zero carbon economy and most importantly, and often not talked about, we have to build resiliency into our communities, into our neighborhoods, so that we are being proactive in how we're responding to climate change. And we are creating neighborhoods and communities and towns that have a, a deep level of resiliency in the face of this uncertainty now that we, we are going to be experiencing year over year. When we look at it uh, on a global level, though, and I I know that this argument often gets shot down, but we are not a huge player when it comes to emissions on a global scale. If you look at all of the emissions of Canada compared even to the yearly increase of emissions coming from China. So even if we do everything we can, if other countries aren't coming on board with this, what difference is that going to make? You know, this is this is a kind of an argument about you know we're we're all on a ship together and everybody's drilling holes, so we're gonna we're gonna keep drilling holes because everybody else is drilling holes. 
uh, and and the ra- the reality is actually Joe is most of the world is turning things around and reducing their emissions. Canada and BC are becoming outliers in terms of our emissions going up, while many many countries around the world are getting their emissions down. We cannot operate in those terms. We are per capita in Canada one of the highest emitters of greenhouse gas. We have to take into account that we export enormous volumes of fossil fuels, and we have to stop being the country that is uh, contributing to these kinds of outcomes. And we have to be the country that says we are going to take leadership. We have everything we need in Canada and British Columbia to transition to a healthy zero carbon. Uh, economy and to ensure that we are showing the kind of global leadership that we should be showing right now, we are the opposite of what we need to be, and we have to take that really seriously and recognize that's not acceptable. And I get what you're saying, and I think people are on board with that. But we do need to look at this as a global issue. And while we can stop doing that in Canada, if you look, and I don't mean to just single out China, but if you look at China, which is continuing to build and expand coal power plants, that is something that is leading to huge emission increases. And that's a country that is doing that, that is going to lead to climate change on a global level. They're also massively ramping up their clean energy sector and have actually a plan uh, to get off of uh, coal and to transition to clean energy faster than we do. And I think that it's really important to recognize that we cannot point at others while we are one of the worst laggards in terms of per capita emissions and in terms of scaling up. We are scaling up fracking uh, in British Columbia We are building pipelines in Canada at a time when none of us really should be able to ignore what the implications of this are. We are seeing how deadly climate change is. It is a public health emergency. Hundreds of people died over the weekend from the heat. Uh, Hundreds of people in, in BC have lost their homes. More are dying from these fires. This is Uh, This is an emergency, and we have to stop pointing uh, elsewhere and say, well, we're not going to do our part until everybody else is perfect. No, we have the the wealth, the resources, the capacity, the land base, and everything we need to be a clean energy country, and we should be doing that right now. Uh, Do you think it's fair, though, to use the argument of per capita when we're talking about a country that is huge with a relatively small population? I mean, yes, the per capita numbers look awful, but it's partially because of that makeup, not because we're the worst polluters on the planet. I I think that if we look at it, it is important to look at it per capita because we have to recognize that as Canadians, we are... uh, you know, on a on a per person basis, uh, contributing to this problem in an outsized way, and I think that most Canadians would prefer to see us as the solution makers, as the innovators, as the country that we could be proud of. To say we're going to not only scale up the innovation and the capacity to produce energy without destroying our uh, climate. We're going to export that. We're going to 
you know, provide that capacity to other countries. We're going to, again, take on that global leadership role that we should be taking, uh, given the fact that we can transition uh, in a way that, that allows people to continue to, you know, to have healthy, thriving lives. But if we don't transition, then we contribute to that incapacity for those healthy, thriving lives. We owe this, Jill, we owe this to our children, our grandchildren, to say we didn't sit back when we could see so clearly the impacts of climate change. We, st- we stepped up for you. But if we don't choose to do that, I don't know how they could forgive us. All right. Sonia, first to know, we'll leave it there. We're right out of time. But thanks so much for joining us and coming on the show this morning. Thank you, Jim. That is Sonia Firstenau, the leader of the BC Green Party. Your thoughts on this, if you want to give us a call on the Buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ. That is 604-331-2899. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Thanks so much for being with us. Well, time to check in and see how things are looking with stage three of the reopen fully in place. Yesterday was the first full day. We wanted to find out what that means for restaurants, one of the business, uh, one of the businesses most affected by the pandemic. So joining us now is Ian Tostenson, CEO of the BC Restaurant Association. Ian, thanks so much for being with us. Always, Jill. I think we should do like a... Uh like Claire does travel uh, tips, we should do restaurant tips. There's always so much going on. <laughs> there is a lot going pandemic. on. Oh, yeah. there really is. Uh, so well, I can, how were uh, things? Yeah, sorry, yeah. I was just wondering, how were things the first full day of different rules or fewer rules? Well, I, I did a lot of scanning, and um, I got to tell you that I think restaurants are definitely an issue. It, it's all about the sociology. It tells you so much, and so... Within uh, 24 hours, we uh, at stage three. So, just for your listeners, um, you know, basically the biggest difference for us going to stage three is masks are now voluntary, and there's no restrictions at the number of people at a table and or the distance between tables. And so, uh, I've got all sorts of interesting comments from restaurants. Um, they one comment was people with masks and no masks seem to coexist and get along just fine which I thought was interesting because, you know, you sort of think that you know, people would get aggravated for people not wearing masks. We were in a restaurant, and one of the people at her table said, um, they're going to head to the washroom, and she went to the washroom. She came back. She kind of she kind of laughed. He said, I made it to the washroom without wearing a mask. Mm-hmm. So I think that people are having fun with us and respecting and really understanding the, the different protocols. So by and large, um, most restaurants are seeing about you know about seventy five percent of the of their patrons are wearing masks. Um, most of the people that aren't wearing masks seem to indicate that they are double vaxxed, and so they have the confidence to do that. Um, barriers are coming down around the bar area, so we're starting to see people gravitate and feel starting to feel comfortable about sitting around the bar and uh, and starting to socialize. 
So exactly kind of what we thought was going to happen is that we're easing back into this. Uh, so are people. They're not coming out just going crazy. They're being a little cautious, but they're having fun while they're doing it. What impression are you getting from workers in that? Are there scenarios, do you think, where workers aren't doubly vaxxed and they would prefer if people are wearing masks? No, I think the confidence is there. I, I, I think certainly when we've messaged quite strongly, uh, you know, from Dr. Henry that, you know, as as the minister, Kaylin, uh, said the other day, is that we're one of the highest vaccinated uh, places in, in the entire world. So people have the confidence by doing that. And if you go back, Jill, before the vaccination started, we were we were safe anyways. We, you know, we keep, you know, I think what you see at the table now is that servers naturally keep a distance. Uh, I think they will probably forever. So they're not in your face and all intrusive. And so I think that we were de- able to demonstrate the safe environment even without vaccinations. And so they're feeling pretty good about that. Uh, so what exactly can people expect? Because I think there is still some confusion. Like you said, so masks are now recommended, but not mandatory. There's no limit as far as the number of people that can be at a table. But from the way I understand the ruling, it's the, or the, the rule, is that venues can determine their own table limits. So a restaurant or a venue could still say, we're not seating groups, say, of more than 10 or more than 12. 100%. It's up to the, uh, up to the venue. And there is a little confusion because... For example, if you had a big room in a restaurant and you could have up to, say, 50 people inside, they have to be seated, and then they can't table hop. So that's one thing you can't do is you can't sing and you can't table hop, and so you can't visit. So we actually saw one of the people at our table last night, uh, they went over and they started to socialize the table. Everybody's going, you can't do that. You're not supposed to talk to anybody else. So, um, you know, I I think the, the restaurants are really good at adjusting uh, and we've told them, adjust for your guests, adjust for your audience, be really sensitive to that. So they can, they're adjusting their tables. We had a situation um, in a restaurant downtown. And there, and by the way, restaurants, it looks like in Victoria, uh, downtown Victoria, which took a big hit, are starting to get busy because people are uh, traveling. And we saw that with the um, uh, advent of what happened, the ferries being busy. And we're starting to see downtown Vancouver pick up. And this restaurant had a table of 10, no issues, two-thirds had masks, and um, everybody was having a good time. So, uh, you know, in, in a lot of places can't really take tables of more than 10 anyways. I mean, we're not banquet halls, right? So right. you start putting in big tables in a restaurant, you're taking up most of real estate. And what about the actual capacity of restaurants? Does that go back to normal? And what about plexiglass? Right. So restaurants are allowed to go back to capacity. So if your restaurant had a capacity of 100, uh, during the pandemic, it probably meant if you were a smaller restaurant and didn't have a patio, you were running at about 60% capacity. And that was really hard on, you know, coffee places and didn't have a lot of room. So uh, they're back to 100%. So that's, uh, that's that's a good thing. And then, you know, Dr. Henry, we've had some conversations with her. She said keep the plexiglass and we sort of inquired a bit more about that there's two things is people like the plexiglass in a lot of cases they like the privacy and also is the plexiglass she said if you have areas like say a hostess station you might want to consider keeping a plexiglass just you know in terms of that initial sort of um, introduction when a guest comes in but by and large, if a restaurant wanted to remove all its plexiglass, it could. But we're saying, you know, why do that? Because people are used to it and do it gradually. Same thing with masks is unmask gradually. 
don't, and, and I think everybody's following that. I mean, when I think about this, um, restaurants are really good at, you know, they're in hospitality and they're there to serve their guests and if their guests are indicating we want to wear masks and have some privacy and some distance, the restaurants will make that adjustment. They have to. And last time I think we talked to you, or one of the recent times we talked to you, uh, you talked about the fact that a lot of restaurants are dealing with issues getting people to come back and the labor shortage. Is there any update there? Yeah, so it's, that's shaking out be a little bit, little bit easier in the suburbs with labor because uh, most people are in the suburbs and not downtown. But downtown's a problem. Management in the industry, right across the board, is a problem. And cooks and chefs. Uh, the nine. Someone said this morning to me, it's a nine one one for cooks and chefs. And so we've got uh, we have a program that brings in uh, uh, skilled foreign workers for cooks and chefs. And that program is just is just in so much demand right now because we don't have enough in the system, but we certainly don't even have enough people in British Columbia to fill the need for the economy. So, and these are these are really good, uh, awesome people. They're coming to become Canadian citizens. So, but it's six months down the road to get a worker. So our trick right now is to get people that a lot of people are still Joe on uh, UI um, benefits. So they're working minimal hours and they're still getting the federal benefit. And we need them to sort of really consider their long-term resume, get into a restaurant, go to your favorite restaurant, knock on the door, tell them you want a job for the summer. I guarantee you they're going to probably get one. But more importantly, they're going to get a great life experience in terms of the first job and something on their resume long-term. And they're going to make some money and they're going to feel better about themselves and away we go. So it's going to take us some time to get back to somewhat normal just because we were closed for, you know, almost two months. But uh, we're inching ahead. So it sounds uh, like things are, are, are on a positive note right now, or things, uh, like you said, are looking up. They really are. And we had a session with Dr. Henry um, with about 150 restaurants the other day, and, and I, I've never seen so much optimism. As someone said, this is, you know, you think this is our first rodeo, though we've never been in the restaurant business before. But it kind of is like our first rodeo, having to readjust these things. But, you know, from Dr. Henry on through to everyone, the, the sense of optimism is great and the sense of, of people pulling together, uh, you know, in the communities to make this thing work and to continue the, the, uh, the, pressure, the pressure to get everybody vaccinated. Um, it's, it's really quite something. It's just the most positive we've seen it in 17 months. It's really awesome. All right. We'll leave it there. Ian, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Appreciate it. Uh, anytime. Thanks, Jill. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, some new research is showing there is a critical labor shortage and growing demand for labor that's having a big impact when it comes to Indigenous tourism. And our Mornings with Simi show contributor, Raji Sohal, joins us once again with more on that story. Hey, Raji. Hi, Jill. Yeah, the Indigenous tourism industry in BC is booming. It's booming, even though we are coming uh, out of the pandemic here um, with all the restrictions and whatnot, but it is still booming and it's on the rise. And I spoke with Brenda Baptiste. She's the Indigenous Tourism uh, BC chair. She told me that she sees the lack of workers that are available right now. It's happening throughout 
the entire tourism industry, not just in the Indigenous one. But she said for them, it's about getting the word out to recruit more people, including young people. But she said she's not that worried because she feels that at some point it is the Indigenous way to always return, to always come back home. And the skills that Indigenous people are learning in their different sectors that they're in now that are not tourist related, um, that they can use them when they do come back onto the land too. And she said a bonus to come out of Indigenous people working elsewhere is that what they have seen is that they come when they do come back, their communities see a revitalization of their own culture. She told me that there are basically two types of uh, Indigenous tourism, that, that one is any Indigenous-inspired, owned, or operated tourist business, and the other is cultural tourism. Here's Brenda. Now, the interesting thing about Indigenous tourism itself is, is that even though these are tourism products, for example, uh, Kukuli Cafe is a good example, right? Don't panic, we have Bannock. Um, and, and they do Indigenous cuisine. And, but it's more than just the Bannock and the products that they, they offer. There's the story that goes into it, to the Indigenous identity that's a part of that, the history of that Bannock, but also the history of the Indigenous people, of the owners as well, that, that this is a part of food sovereignty. And so Indigenous cultural tourism, what sets that apart is whether it's well watching or um, staying at an accommodation such as St. Eugene's, there's that story that's behind it about the Indigenous people within that area and who, whose territory that you're visiting and to be able to experience some of their living culture which includes the language and the culture and the ceremonies and the dances and, and all of that. So it's an immersive experience, regardless of whether it's a restaurant, a golf course or an accommodation. I really like what Brenda says there about going beyond just consuming culture, because so often, Jill, when we do any kind of travel, uh, we are just consuming culture, but she talks about actually being a part of it, it being immersive. And when you go to the Indigenous tourism site to plan your next trip somewhere, you shouldn't expect a monolithic experience because diversity and uniqueness is what is key in Indigenous tourism. We're very unique here in British Columbia. Out of 600 nations, over 600 nations across Canada, 200 of those nations and communities reside here in British Columbia. So we're lucky. There's such a diversity of culture and language. I am from the Silks uh, Nation. I live in Osuyas. I'm an Osuyas Indian band member. Um, my culture is very different from the Tsleil-Waututh culture, right, in North Vancouver or the Haida culture, or the Northern cultures. The language is different, the culture is different, the ceremony is different. Certainly there are, there are um, some uh, connections as Indigenous people in terms of our values and our, our principles and our, our principles of hosting and feasting and uh, you know being stewards of our lands. Um, but there's such a vast diversity in this province and it truly is a unique story for each of these communities to tell. And it's their story to, to share. 
I also like there that she holds storytelling as a really critical part of what makes Indigenous tourism so unique and so interesting. I personally find that whenever I am a tourist anywhere, whether it's local or abroad, it's always when the person who is delivering uh, the the tourism, the steward, um, it's when they share personal stories with me that I'm enraptured, that I'm having a good time, that I'm, I'm super interested and I feel like it goes above and beyond. And uh, Brenda told me that BC was actually the first place to establish an Indigenous tourism group in the world. Um, and that happened 20 years ago. And it's just, it's grown incredibly. And sharing their culture with non-Indigenous has also, she said, been helpful for Indigenous communities too. We believe that Indigenous cultural tourism is one of the highest forms of sovereignty for a community because they decide of their culture, what they're going to share and what they're going to protect. And the things that they're going to share with their visitors and as their hosting visitors is something that they choose to. But the other part about it is, is that if you're going to share your culture, you have a responsibility to pass that culture on to your youth. So you've got traditional knowledge keepers and elders who are teaching youth about their culture and their language and the history of their lands and the histories of their people so that they can be ambassadors and share with our hosts. So it truly is a story that only we can tell. What an interesting idea and really opening up people's eyes to this. Like you said, Raji, they're, they're seeing this huge boom in the industry, but I'm guessing there are a lot of people as well. And I'm looking at the website, the indigenousbc.com website right now, with, which has all of the travel ideas and places to go and that. And it's just a wealth of information. It totally is. And uh, I'm going to admit some ignorance here. I had no idea how vast it was and how much they offer. Um, I was not expecting to find out that there were as many tourism operators as they are. And they have this excellent uh, kind of a video a commercial, a longer one on their on their website in which you can uh, get a sampling of the things that they offer and the people that uh, are the stewards of it. They're really like teachers and guides and are so committed to sharing their own stories through the experiences that they're sharing with you as well. So you could be eating at a restaurant, like she said, uh, with someone and you will um, just have such a full and unique and interesting experience unlike any other. Yeah, it's very, uh, very interesting. And and I'm guessing, too, as the province reopens, and unfortunately, we're dealing, as we know, with wildfires uh, right now and such. But as things reopen and get back to some form of normal, there'll be a whole lot more people traveling and exploring. Yeah, and uh, probably like myself, too, people are looking in their own backyards now for things that they didn't know about before. So the Indigenous Tourism website's a great place to start navigating from. All right. Sounds good. Raji, thanks so much. Thanks, Jill. That is Mornings with Simi contributor Raji Sohal. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, we're going to take a few moments now to talk about driving tips, how to stay safe when on the roads. As we know, with the wildfires in BC, there are some road closures and we're keeping a close eye on that. But as we head into the summer uh, and many more people will be taking those weekend trips and going on those road trips. We wanted to take some time to make sure people are doing it safely. And joining me on the line is Josh Smythe, BCAA Automotive Manager. Thanks so much for being with us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me here. Uh, What would be the key things you would tell people as far as before you even head out on the road, what should you be doing to make sure your vehicle's in good shape? 
Well, one of the first things I would suggest to make sure your vehicle's in the best condition is uh, visit your trusted mechanic. Have your, your vehicle checked over. There's a lot of things involved with taking a road trip in, in regards to your vehicle. You need to check your tires. You need to check some fluids. You need to make sure that it's just operating uh, correctly and there's, there's nothing deficient that's going to fail you on, on, on your trip. How often should you be doing that yourself as well? Maybe not as thorough as you might get at a mechanic shop, but say checking the tires and making sure everything's in good shape. Well, I mean, ideally we should be taking a look at the tires pretty much every time we're going out on the road for any length of time. But, you know, a weekly walk around to, you know, to kick the rubber, if you will, check the tire, uh, sorry, the tire tread depth. Uh, you know, confirm the the strength of the battery, you know, just little things like remembering how old the battery is, for example, would get you a a little further down the road. You know, a battery battery close to five years is, you know, close to its end of life. And if you're floating around five years, it might be uh, worth doing that change even before the trip. Hmm, that's an interesting idea because we tend, you're right, we tend to not think of that until one day you go out to operate the vehicle and the battery's dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's never a problem until it's a problem. And, and of course, that never happens when you're just sitting around the house. You're usually on the way to, on the way to work or, you know, you've got a schedule to maintain. And when that does happen, it, it, it slows your day down and it's certainly inconvenient. So just as long as, uh, you know, we can keep people moving, uh, everybody will be in a better spot. A lot of people using air conditioning right now in their vehicles, if you have air conditioning in the vehicle. What do you need to know uh, about that if, say, the temperature changes or it seems like maybe it's not as cold as it should be? Well, um, air conditioning is a little bit of a relative temperature. Uh, So, for example, the hotter it is outside, uh, the warmer your air conditioning will blow. But there's going to be a a variant in temperature. So it's still going to be 15 degrees, 10 degrees lower than what it is outside so um you know to test it basically turn it on and as long as it feels nice and cold to your hand um that's that's pretty much functional uh there are some other tests that your trusted mechanic can do with it in regards to pressures and stuff for confirmations um uh, just to make sure it is completely functional and and working at 100 percent for you Uh, We know that gas prices are uh, very high right now. Uh, They're in some places more than $1.70 a litre. How do you make sure or what can you do to try and make sure you get the best mileage you can? Well, um, keep things off of your car if you can. You know, we don't want to be riding down the road with a bunch of stuff on a roof rack, a little extra wind resistance. Uh, But, but, you know, it's the classic tire scenario, having a proper pressure in your tire is key to proper uh, gas mileage. If, if you have low pressure, you have a little bit of extra resistance, your car has to work a little bit harder. And, and you know, in regards to tire pressure, especially in this heat, when you go for a drive, next time you're at the gas station, check your tire pressure. You'll be surprised how much your tire pressure can change going up due to the heat on the road. Uh, you might actually have to let some out when you get to the next gas stop. So keep an eye on it and to keep it safe. And is there a, a rule of thumb then as far as what the tire pressure should be at, or is that dependent on what kind of tire we're dealing with? It's definitely dependent on what kind of tire. Generally speaking, passenger vehicles range between 28 pounds and 35 pounds, but lighter trucks and other vehicles, they, they all have different PSIs in their tire. So check your tire placard. It's usually on your door frame or can be found in your glove box. And uh, make sure your tire's within that. And if, again, if you have any questions or it, it doesn't make any sense, Please visit your technician. He's the guy there to help you out, and uh, he'll make sure that uh, they should be where they are.
Is that one of the things, I guess, uh, that you see a lot of uh, as far as tire pressure, maybe people not checking it enough, and also tire tread? You mentioned that as well, but it's kind of like the battery also. It's kind of out of sight, out of mind. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, you know, tires, they they keep you on the road, uh, physically keep you on the road. So they're they're really important, and and especially when it comes to um, travel uh, in the summertime and, you know, people are taking their RVs or their boat trailers that hasn't really seen you know, travel for the last year. Um, you know, these things can age just sitting there. Just because it was fine when you parked it doesn't mean it's going to be fine when you go to roll away. Um, you know, trailer tires, for example, they uh, they wear so little because you use that trailer maybe only a couple times a year, uh, but the tire itself over time becomes aged. So around the seven or eight-year mark, uh, it starts to age out and, you know, become cracked and, so, you know, these kind of things are what, what these technicians are looking for, making sure that there's no excessive age and everything is, you know, ready to go for you. So my tires are super important. I saw one of the tips as well is to always keep the gas tank more than half full. What does that do? Mm-hmm. Well, the, the gas inside the gas tank is actually keeping the fuel pump cool. So if you have less than half a tank and there's, some exposed pump in, in, in the gas tank. It's not completely submerged. It's not getting you the best cooling it can get. And when we have this kind of heat, your, your fuel pump can get very warm very quickly, and it can fail. So, uh, you know, half a tank of gas will keep your fuel pump submerged in the fuel and keep it as cool as it can be. And do you see people, is it an issue as far as people, nobody wants to break down, but it does happen. Are people prepared mm-hmm. for that? Uh, well, you know, I think, you know, with everything that just went on in the last uh, year, uh, people are certainly getting more prepared for the unexpected. So uh, it certainly seems people are a little bit better prepared while driving, uh, but it's always a good reminder. Sometimes you forget the little things like the sunscreen. Um, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a new time since this COVID. So I, I, we do find that a lot of people are being more and more prepared for, for the trips as they, they uh, set out to go. And we uh, put out this warning, I think, every year, every time the temperature gets higher, and that has to do with pets, uh, with children, and uh, keeping them safe in the vehicle as well. Yes, yes. Pets and small children never fare well in, in, in a very warm vehicle. And it doesn't have to be very warm outside. Today where I'm at, we're bouncing around the 25-degree mark. In 10 minutes, the inside of the car will be 32 degrees. In a half an hour, the inside's 40 degrees. So if you remember a couple of days ago when we were hammered with that heat, that's how fast it will happen inside that car. Um, you know, little little guys, you know, pets and people, um, you know, locked cars, closed windows, it, does, it, it doesn't work out. Never leave them alone. No, and even if, and again, it's something that we talk about every year, but the idea too, some people clearly still think that cracking the window open a bit is enough. But as you mentioned, the inside of those vehicles gets very, very hot, even with an open window. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Super, super hot. You know, the, the, you're, you're sitting in ski, oh, this thing warms up in the sunlight. Uh, dashboards, interiors are often a dark color, which absorbs heat. It gets horribly quick, or sorry, it gets horribly hot, horribly quickly. So definitely don't, uh, don't, don't do it. You know, if you felt interested and you wanted to try it yourself, uh, I'm, I'm sure you wouldn't last more than three or four minutes. So, you know, the, the little pets and the little people certainly, you know, uh, aren't going to fare well either. So definitely keep them uh, uh, out of the car when the car is closed up or, or when you're parked. All right. Very good advice and timely advice as many people, I believe, are planning those road trips. Josh, we'll leave it there, but thanks so much for joining us. 
Thank you so much for having me. That is Josh Smythe, a BCAA automotive manager, talking about some safe summer driving tips.